You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. Now I'd like to apologize some in advance just in case things don't go smoothly on my end today. I've actually had a sore throat most of this week and today's the day it's really starting to go away but if you hear some sounds, maybe I have a hard time speaking sometimes and such, that's not the way things normally go around here but I'm a little trooper. I keep on going. Um, my wife, on the other hand, has had her nausea return, and it's very hard on her, which in turn is very hard on me. So if you can pray for my Princess Audi, I would really appreciate that. But today, we're talking about the birth of the Trinity. No, I don't mean something as if the Trinity one day popped into existence. I mean, well, why not let our guest tell you what it's meant? And our guest is Matthew W. Bates. He is an assistant professor of theology at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois. He holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame in theology. His area of specialization is New Testament and early Christianity. His books include Salvation by Allegiance Alone, which is forthcoming from Baker Academic, For Birth of a Trinity, which is published by Oxford University Press, quite a good feat in what we're talking about today, and for Hermeneutics of the Apostolic Proclamation from Baylor University Press in 2012. He also hosts a popular biblical studies podcast called, called On Scripts. So, uh, yeah, I've got a scholar on here and a podcaster. Very interesting combination. Dr. Bates, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, thank you so much, Nick. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little about who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciated your scholarly introduction uh, that tells something about who I am, but um, uh, I'll give you a little bit more of my personal story then. Mm -hmm. um, so I was raised in a Christian family, uh, and uh, one of my very first memories, in fact, would be uh, a memory of making a decision to follow Jesus at my mother's uh, instigation and assistance. Uh, I remember that actually was something that was even meaningful to me. Uh, even as a small child, I, I remember it partly because I remember weeping uh, when I was doing that. And I was only four years old. Uh, so I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. Um, of course, uh, the journey uh, is much longer than that. Uh, and uh, the complexity of what that would mean to follow Jesus uh, has increased over time. Uh, but I still delight in following Jesus Christ as my Lord. Um, 
My my story, I suppose, is uh, gets a little more interesting. Uh, whenever I was uh, in sixth grade, uh, was when we started attending church, and uh, actually we had a family friend who was involved in a tragic accident, um, and uh, he was paralyzed in a mill accident. And uh, my family got involved in going to church uh, at that time through his testimony because uh, he believed God had spared his life uh, during this mill accident, which seems undoubtedly true. Uh, his name is Doyle. Instead of being bitter about this. Uh, he instead was just filled with praise for God, even though he'd been paralyzed. Uh, one would think that might embitter somebody, but uh, he saw it as his second chance in life. So he testified to my family. Uh, although my family were sort of nominally Christian, we got involved at church at that time, uh, and it was a very conservative church tradition, a, a King James-only fundamentalist church. Uh, some of you would know the flavor of that kind of church. Uh, some may be less familiar, um, but uh, sort of in the baptist tradition, but very, very conservative. Um, so as time went on and uh, uh, I began to learn more, I began to question some aspects of that tradition. I was very attracted to science. Uh, and in fact, uh, my favorite uh, subject in high school was physics. So I, I maybe thought that physics would be able to explain um, all the things that I needed to know about life. Uh, so I got interested in the study of physics increasingly. Uh, and after that, I uh, ended up in a physics major in college, but by God's providence, I went to uh, Whitworth University, uh, and it was there that I really uh, had my faith renewed, uh, and uh, it was actually through a New Testament course that I took that I got interested specifically in New Testament studies, not just as something that was spiritually satisfying to me, but something that was intellectually intriguing, intellectually satisfying, uh, and uh, went on from there to uh, to uh, finish my physics degree there, uh, and then to work for a while as an electrical engineer, and then to seminary at Regent College, uh, and then from Regent College back to engineering for a while, and then onward to the PhD. So that's uh, that's just a little bit of my kind of spiritual formation, intellectual background. I have some interest in the intersection between science and theology, uh, but also uh, my my first uh, my first love would be biblical exegesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it interesting also that you're a scholar and you do a podcast both. I don't find that combination very often. The only other person I can think of who's like that right off is Mark Goodacre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I got involved in doing the podcast. Uh, the podcast is called OnScript.Study, or that's where we host it. It's called OnScript. Um, I got involved in doing the podcast uh, primarily at the initiation of a good friend, uh, my friend Matt Lynch. Uh, we went to seminary together, and we always enjoyed wonderful conversations about Bible, about theology. We were attending the same church, and we actually team-taught a Sunday school together, and we were often in conversation about that. So he contacted me. He's also a scholar. He's an Old Testament scholar uh, at, at Westminster Theological Center in the UK. And uh, he contacted me and said, we need to extend this conversation and uh, we need to continue to have it and maybe uh, bring some other people into the conversation. So uh, we got started doing this podcast on script. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it leaves me feeling a little bit on the spot here, some girls. Now I've Got a scholar and a podcast on so I can be critiqued on both levers here of how I handle this. Uh. Uh, let's uh, start talking. First off, one of the things I liked about your book, before we jump into the content so much, is you were able to state up front that you're a Christian scholar, and that that seems to be less and less of a herder to good scholarship today. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. Um, it's you know we can on the one hand lament our 
uh, entry into sort of this postmodern milieu where Christianity doesn't have the same, you know, cultural weight that it used to have. But on the other hand, it can give us some advantages. One of the, I think the the problems in the academy is that because we we have the academy, especially in terms of biblical studies, has sort of um, you know been situated primarily in the Jewish Christians, uh, the Jewish Christian studies circle, and especially the Protestant circle, is uh, that uh, maybe there's a suspicion that um, that that sort of um, background of coming to the text from that angle might bias one, you know, toward the material. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a sort of a, a modern way of looking at it would be that, you know, that we can get, we can be neutral about these things and, you know, and that the ideal scholar would be one that is not committed at all, you know, that is uh, just has no opinion whatsoever about the text and is completely objective, like a scientist or a clinical sort of uh, approach to the text. Uh, one of the things that's nice about the postmodern context is we realize that's a little naive uh, and that we all have our, frameworks that we bring. We all have our worldviews. We all have our lenses. Uh, And so I think that the academy is increasingly aware that, you know, the ideal scholar isn't necessarily the atheist and that the atheist isn't more objective than the Christian Mm -hmm. or something like that, but that we we both have our lenses that we bring. Uh, They're different lenses, uh, and we can't can't presuppose that one is more or less biased than the other. Mm -hmm. So I think there is an increased openness to... um, uh, to scholars being frank about their Christian commitments in doing their scholarship with the realization that that doesn't uh, make them any more or less biased than anybody else. And for those unfamiliar with a scholarly process, whenever you submit your work, I mean, you have it tested for peer review and such, the process for a Christian is just the exact same as it is for anyone else, isn't it? That's true. Yes, and um, and the book that we're discussing today, primarily the birth of the Trinity, is a monograph. So it, it did go through, you know, an independent uh, peer review of a couple readers who who had to make recommendations to the press as to whether or not it should be published or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would be that would be common for any university press publication. And other kinds of uh, monographs can go through various levels of peer review. Um, journals have different processes. Sometimes it's a blind peer review. Sometimes not blind. It, de- it depends on the press and the process. But yes. Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, everyone has to go through the same process. Now, when I was making my introduction, I said the book's called The Birth of the Trinity. It doesn't mean the Trinity just suddenly popped into existence one day and such, but what does it mean? Good question. Um, so when I'm talking about the birth of the Trinity here, um, I'm talking about uh, the birth of the concept of the Trinity, right? Mm-hmm. We would want to say that uh, Orthodox Christianity has affirmed that the Trinity is eternal, that it has no origin in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we were always aware that the Trinity was eternal or even right. aware of, that there was a Trinity, mm-hmm. uh, that we would see – Christians would see this as something that God didn't reveal until the right moment in time. Uh, but that when he did begin to reveal that, then we began to have um, a, a sociological ideas and linguistic ideas surrounding um, the the experience of the Trinity uh, that would allow us to begin speaking about it in more concrete ways. So when I talk about the birth of the Trinity, I'm really talking about the birth of it as a sociolinguistic phenomenon that we can that we can discuss. Now, when I started going through your book. And he sent to me one of the things that I know so it's, I, mean, I read a lot of New Testament scholarship. I'm not a scholar myself, but I read a lot of it. And before too long, I mean, I, I thought I've heard a little bit about pretty much everything I can. But before too long, I'm hearing about prosopological readings of a text and theodramatic readings of a text. And I thought, 
I have never even heard of this kind of thing. What are mm-hmm. we talking about? Yeah, um, prosopological exegesis is not something that I came up with, although you're right. It's something that uh, within the bounds of New Testament scholarship is novel. There isn't any other New Testament scholars that have really been working with this category, uh, and some others are just beginning to do so as well. Um, So the term actually comes from um, a French scholar, uh, Marie-Joseph Rondeau, uh, and uh, she's the one who coins uh, the term prosopological exegesis. She she uh, she uses the French for that, which I'm not going to try to butcher the French language by by speaking for you. Um, but she did a, a study on um, on uh, the Psalter and uh, looking at how the early church fathers were reading the Psalter. Uh, and in her study, she noticed that they used a certain technique uh, that really focused on um, person. And uh, it was uh, through this study that she coined the phrase prosopological exegesis. Now, um, I can get, I'll get into more of that as you wish as to, to what it is, but a little bit more about the background. She actually was looking uh, back herself on previous studies, and uh, e- even though she coins the term prosopological exegesis, she relied especially on a study by uh, Carl Andreessen uh, that was done in the 60s, um, and he called this phenomenon prosopographic exegesis. Uh, his study uh, was called, uh, you know, Zurinstehung, um, uh, like uh, t- for the toward the origin and Geschichte uh, uh, of the trin- Trinitarian person concept. I can't remember the name of it in English. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Carl Andreessen had done the study, and uh, and uh, she relied on his scholarship especially. Uh, but she she changed the nomenclature, I think, for some sound reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, what exactly does this mean? Then, I mean, one way I described was it's kind of like we we get a glimpse behind the curtain and seeing what's going on in the phone room of heaven, and we are told about this text that. Normally, we don't understand before we say, oh, well, now we look and say, this is being spoken by Jesus. This is being spoken by the Holy Spirit. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's, you're on the right track for sure. Um, well, why don't we circle toward that? And I'll actually, um, I have, I have it fairly handy here. So I'm going to pull up a text that I'll read for you that okay. is probably the foundational text for, um, a theoretical description of prosopological exegesis. It comes mm-hmm. actually from our one of our early church fathers, Justin Martyr, and he's the he's the father. Uh, a lot of different church fathers talk about it, but he's the one who probably gives the most concise and articulate early description of prosopological exegesis. Now, Justin's a little later than the New Testament, but I think we have some sound reasons for believing that what Justin's describing here was also going on in the New Testament era. Here's Justin's description. Uh, now, from, before, before you yep, read that ahead. quick, uh, that's for people who don't know, that's just kind of like early 2nd century, right? That's right. Yeah, okay. Justin Martyr, we would date his first apology to around, oh, let's say, 160 AD. Okay. Uh, so here's this is from his first apology, chapter 36. Justin says this. He says, but whenever you hear the sayings of the prophets spoken as from a person, uh, and in Greek we have hosapa prosopu, and that prosopu language becomes important for prosopological exegesis. Mm-hmm. has to do with the idea of person. Uh, whenever you hear the sayings of the prophets spoken as from a person, you must not suppose the sayings to be spoken from the inspired persons themselves, but from the divine logos who moves them. And that's where we get the logos part or the logical part for prosopological. Mm-hmm. For sometimes he speaks as one announcing in advance things are which are about to happen. 
Sometimes he speaks as from the person of God, the master and father of all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes as from the person of Christ. Sometimes as from the person of the people giving answer to the Lord and his father. So there are a number of things we could notice about that statement, but um, but one of one of the things that you point out is that it, it involves sort of a theodramatic idea and uh, and uh, kind of the idea of the prophet speaking in the person of someone else, and this is what we see here. Justin mentioning that we we shouldn't think that, for instance, when Isaiah is giving a prophecy, uh, that it's always Isaiah speaking in his own guise, right. but that Isaiah might slip into an alternative mm. person. He might right. speak from a, a different prosopon, a different character, uh, and adopt an alternative persona. And from the bounds of that alternative persona, he might then, uh, stepping into a new role, speak as if from the person of the Christ and mm-hmm. speak to God the Father. Or he might step into the person of God himself and speak from God to the Christ. Or a whole bunch of other possible configurations are there. Um, but that's that's the basic idea of prosopological exegesis, is this uh, slipping into the character that could happen in the text and then uh, the prosopological exegesis is the search for that, you know, as we're looking for that happening in our text. Yeah. How do you think this would relate to what's kind of seen as a speech and character reading, such as how in Romans, many people think Paul is interacting with an imaginary interlocutor that he thinks would respond to what he says, and says, well, here's what this guy would say, and here's what I say back, without explicitly pointing out the text, or how in Romans 7, some people say, including myself, that, well, that's not autobiographical when Paul says, it's not, I don't do what I want, but the sin within me. He's speaking as someone else for the sake of argument. Right. Mm-hmm. How do you think this would relate to that? Yeah, that, that's a great observation. It relates very closely to this mm-hmm. phenomenon. This is a, um, a Greco-Roman technique that uh, scholars are well aware of called prosopopoeia, mm-hmm. this idea of stepping into an alternative character. Um, and there's been a number of studies, as you mentioned, that have been done with regard to this. Stanley Stowers is the one who really uh, broke uh, broke the ground for some of this. But like Douglas Campbell has done studies uh, where he has suggested we have an unannounced speaker in the text. Uh, and uh, uh, others are doing similar work right now, too. Um, so this prosopopoeia um, was something that um, a- ancient rhetoricians spoke about. Uh, and uh, they said that... Um, uh, for instance, um, you, uh, an orator or a rhetorician, as they were being trained in the classroom for how to be a great rhetorician later, uh, the schoolmaster might assign an exercise and might say, hey, I want you to pretend you're general so-and-so, you know, and that you have just won this tr- tremendous battle, right? Uh, what fitting speech would general so-and-so mm-hmm. say on such an occasion? Mm-hmm. I want you to make up the speech, uh, is what the schoolmaster might tell the pupil to do. Uh, And then the pupil would proceed to pretend he's famous general so-and-so. And And so uh, this was a a common um, grammatical exercise that had to be done by rhetors in training. uh, And so that they could learn how to uh, give great speeches in the forum. Uh, And so... Uh, you're right. It does closely relate to this, and this is part of the reason we see these kinds of techniques being used um, in in the Bible by Paul, uh, where we see evidence that he uh, would sometimes uh, step into an alternative character in order to persuade. Now, the difference is prosopological exegesis is arguing that this was not just a persuasive technique, that Paul wasn't just trying to adopt a persona in order to persuade his audience, uh, that he would enter into the, you know, the theoretically into um, 
uh, let's say, uh, the, uh, the ideal Jew, that Paul might uh, put himself in that position of being the ideal Jew and speak from the position not of himself, of the ideal Jew. Um, but uh, instead, he might not use it just to persuade. In- instead of using it to persuade, he might use it uh, as an exegetical technique or as a reading technique, so that as he was reading through other literature, he might be searching for this. Uh, and that would be the difference between prosopopoeia then and prosopological exegesis. One is a technique to persuade. The other is the search for when other people use this persuasive technique uh, in sacred scripture, especially. Now, when you were talking about how uh, Roman teachers would have their students do this, I couldn't help but think about how Thucydides, for instance, even said that if he wasn't there to hear or if he didn't have enough eyewitness testimony to what someone said in a speech, he put what he thought would have been most fitting for them to say on that occasion. Yes, that's right. Um, so it does connect to those sort of um, techniques, probably within Greco-Roman historiography as well. This is something that's been much discussed by those who study Greco-Roman historiography, yeah. and obviously you're aware of it, um, that uh, it was considered acceptable within the bounds of ancient Greco-Roman history writing to make up a speech uh, on appropriate occasions, sometimes, uh, at least we have evidence for that. Um, so you're right, it does relate closely to that. Um, and so it's a, it's a well-known technique from the ancient world. Um, it hasn't really been applied to the doctrine of the Trinity, or it hasn't been, a, um, uh, it hasn't been flipped around really very much so that it, it's, it's something uh, that we're looking for ancient writers doing uh, in their own scriptural exegesis, like uh, looking for, was Paul looking for prosopopoeia when he was reading ancient texts, and how might that inform our understanding of Paul's use of the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's what we haven't done much of in biblical scholarship yet, and mm-hmm. are beginning to do more of. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people might be surprised when we start talking about the Trinity, say the place to really start talking about the Trinity at first, actually, is not... Contrary to what you might think, the old Sunday school advice to start with Jesus, but to start before Jesus. Back in 2014, on March 29th, I was fortunate enough to have uh, Michael Bird, Charles Tearing, and Chris Tearing, and Charles here all on my show together for a little while to talk about how God became Jesus. And one of the grounds that we started this on was that there was actually an openness to the plurality of persons in the Godhead even before the time of Jesus wasn't there. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. I think that my own sense of the literature is that uh, there was not such an intense preoccupation with um, the internal differentiations of God's of God's oneness as a boundary within early Judaism. So it was okay to talk about the ways in which God might be one mm-hmm. uh, and to invoke like Plato does, like, you know, to talk about how God's oneness might be brokered through various Platonic forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that those might even possibly uh, have a certain kind of uh, hypostatic value on their own mm-hmm. as, as some sort of concrete uh, instantiations. Uh, and so, it's true that uh, I think that as Judaism continues its polemical engagement with Christianity over the course of time, the boundaries do harden, and uh, the great declaration of, of Judaism, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, becomes more about uh, – saying that even internal to God, God is one, uh, and the idea that we could speculate about the ways in which God's oneness might be brokered to the world um, 
closing off some of that, probably in response to Christianity. I think that's fair to say uh, that there was a polemical context there that uh, that they didn't like. Uh, th- there was disagreements about the way that Christianity had mobilized uh, a Trinitarian monotheism uh, and, uh, and, a, and an attempt to sort of close that down uh, with a, um, a polemic that said, no, we can't talk about the ways in which the one God might be internally differentiated. That's not okay. But you're right. I think back in the time of Jesus, it was a little more fluid. Yeah, I, I think before Jesus came along, the Shema would have been seen as making it so much a statement about God, but a statement of allegiance that Israel would make, say, we serve one God and he is ours alone. And that it, it later got morphed more probably just because, hey, we can't be letting the Christians use this. But the interesting thing is even after Christ, you have centuries later the ideas showing up such as Metatron, who is supposed to be a lesser Yahweh and God's name dwells in him because the Jews still couldn't escape a lot of the problems they had. Yes. Um, yeah, you're right. There's a there's a pretty lush uh, interest in figures uh, that uh, that connect intimately with God in some perhaps mediatorial capacity or some sort of complex ontological relationship that's mm-hmm. hard to tease out. We see this obviously in the Old Testament too, with you know, uh, for instance, at the burning bush, you know, and other places where it talks about you know, um, on, on the one hand, um, you know, the name of God being in you know, um, uh, the messenger in some way, but somehow it's, is it God or is God's name in it? Or is, you know, how does that exactly work? Uh, we have a lot of complexity around those issues. Yeah. I'm thinking about figures like when you mentioned the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and one of my favorites, and when I think we can see Jesus a lot in light of is a presentation of wisdom. In fact, I would argue that Jesus presented himself as God's wisdom, yeah, well, certainly the early church fathers mobilized that wisdom tradition, and it became very important in Trinitarian discussions as we get closer to the time of Nicaea, especially in closing off Arius's uh, deviant theology, uh, or at least, it, uh, you know, as uh, as that theology was eventually closed off, yes, um, seeing Jesus as wisdom was very important. I myself am a little more hesitant about the wisdom tradition as uh, a vehicle for Christology in our earliest sources. Uh, it's something that I need to continue to probe. Yeah. Now, what you do say, though, that really kind of launched our Trinitarian understanding, and a lot of people can be quick to dismiss us. You say, no, we shouldn't be. That would be, they encountered Jesus, and that kind of changed their view a little bit. So, to clarify, are you asking the degree to which Jesus himself was responsible for launching early Trinitarianism? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I think before that, we could have said it was theoretical, but when Jesus shows up and he rises again, we say, okay, now we have something we really have to work with. Yes. Yeah, I would agree that uh, until God chooses to reveal himself through the incarnation, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, that those experiences of uh, God in our midst uh, were decisive experiences that forced a rereading of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So there are things in the Old Testament that are truly there, I think, in retrospect, as we look back in light of that further revelation. Um, but I don't know that there are things that we could have seen otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you do is quite correctly, I think, is there can be a huge misconception. I think this was popular 
some of the lessons she tried to explain historical Jesus to go to mystery religions and such. And today, groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who still say the Trinity came from paganism. Personally, I've reached this kind of stage in most of my studies where I can, as soon as someone says, that comes from paganism, I pretty much disregard it at that point until I can present some serious, serious evidence. But your stance in the book, obviously, is that no, this didn't come from paganism, it came from Judaism, and I don't even think you really see Trinities in paganism. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that the idea that it's a pagan notion is um, is an unsubstantiated claim that would need to be demonstrated. Uh, but the move is often made uh, along these lines, and, and this is a it sort of goes back to Adolf von Harnack and uh, and kind of early history of religion approaches that wanted to um, sort of have a pure Jewish monotheism, a relatively pure Jewish monotheism uh, that then was tainted by uh, later um, encounters with Hellenism. And then as Christianity sort of moved forward developmentally, uh, there was a a uh, uh, a illicit mixing of, you know, Jewish and Hellenistic ideas that gave birth to the Trinity. Um, there are a number of problems with that thesis. Um, you know, one problem is that it, it, the best of our, the best evidence that we can marshal today would suggest that Judaism in Jesus's day was already very thoroughly Hellenized. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really have this, uh, this sort of pure Jewish monotheism uh, is like looking for Bigfoot. You know, we keep looking, but we don't find anything because it's, it's, there's not really a Bigfoot out there, right? Uh, as uh, you go back and you look for the, this pure Jewish monotheism of Jesus's day, uh, you're forced to the conclusion that um, that the, the world of Galilee, the world of Jerusalem and that Jesus inhabited was pretty thoroughly Hellenized already so that we can't go back looking for a, a, a allegedly pure Jewish monotheism that doesn't exist. Um, you know, and this would kind of get into our earlier question that some of the uh, speculation that was already going on about internal differentiations within the one God that was already happening in the, the Judaism of Jesus' day, we especially see that with Philo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a few years ago also, Bart Ehrman came out with his book, uh, How Jesus Became God. And I read through that one, and honestly, I was a bit disappointed one of the things I notice about Ehrman is usually when he writes, he ignores his best critics a lot of times. He's got a couple of citations of Hurtado in there, but no mention, really, of Hurtado's works on, say, responding to works like Lord Jesus Christ, and absolutely no mention of Richard Bauckham whatsoever, who I think would be one of his strongest critics entirely. In, I think it was Bauckham who, in fact, said the earliest Christology is the highest Christology. They would just disagree entirely because Ehrman would say this is a late development and Bauckham would say this was the first development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that uh, the developmental Christology um, line of argument is, is certainly one that is, uh, faces a strong uphill battle. Uh, the problem with the developmental Christology argument is that Paul clearly has a high Christology, and Paul's mm-hmm. our earliest author. Um, and so, if it's if it's clear that Paul viewed Jesus as God in a relatively full sense, which I think has been unshakably established, uh, it becomes very very difficult to argue that it developed slowly and gradually. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a popular thing to do, going back to Jimmy Dunn, you know, and his Christology in the making. Jimmy Dunn had made an argument that, you know, for, toward a developmental Christology. Uh, and 
Dunn's argument uh, essentially works by looking at each individual text where we might have what's called a high Christology or a view that would involve Jesus uh, at the level of God in some way, and him saying, well, is it possible to read it another way? Uh, and, and showing that it might be possible to read that another way, uh, and doing that through, for all the texts. The problem is that the cumulative evidence of that is weak, right? Mm-hmm. If, you ha- if you end up having 15 texts, you know, or whatever that might involve Jesus's divinity, and uh, for every single one of them, you're saying, well, it's possible to read it a different way. Well, uh, how possible, right? If any single one of those shows Jesus's divinity, right. well, then, well, that's all you need is just one. Right, uh, and so if if any given one, let's say, is fifty fifty, well, as you take that cumulative evidence together, well, your your probability radically diminishes uh, that uh, that Jesus isn't in fact fully divine, uh, and uh, and so I think you're right. There's problems with that whole developmental line of Christology argument, and I I have some specific problems with some of the things uh, Ehrman does in uh, that book, How Jesus Became God, mm-hmm. uh, that we could get into more if you want, but uh, I'll I'll see where you want to take our conversation. Oh, I wouldn't mind going there some as well. So if, but if text, if something comes up that you reminds you about, feel free to jump in with that as well. That I, I hear what you're saying about Dunn. I mean, if all we have were say one or two isolated passages, Dunn could have a pretty persuasive case. But the more you build up, up it just becomes harder and harder. And then I think about Chris Tilling's book, uh, Paul's Divine Christology, where he has a way of reading the text where he says, "I think I can show you." the deity of Christ in nearly every single chapter mm-hmm. of the works of Paul. And then it's, okay, now we're going to have a much harder time saying that this is a late development. Yeah, yeah. Chris, Chris Tilling's argument is that there's a, a, a sort of a pattern, you know, a, yeah. a, whole, a whole pattern of how God related to his people uh, that is being replicated by Jesus, especially you see it strongly in in First Corinthians eight through ten, uh, where where uh, the way in which um, God relates to His people we see mirrored in the way that Jesus relates to um, is is being understood to relate to His people and uh, uh, the church. So um, I think uh, Telling's argument is novel and an important one, uh, and I do think you're right um, that uh, it's it's evidence like that that. Along with other things, too, that I think that uh, radically undermines an adoptionist uh, Christology and undermines the sort of developmentalism that uh, that we find in, in Ehrman. Ehrman makes some strange moves in there, too. Yeah. Um, he, he, for instance, wants to, to argue that, um, that this, this passage, uh, in Galatians, um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that talks about, um, you know, that, uh, you know, if I, if I, if you could, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes for me. Uh, and then there's a, a passage in that, uh, that, that mentions, uh, uh, as if an angel of God, as if Christ Jesus himself. Uh, and so he sort of makes this move saying that the only way to construe, that the best way to construe that is to see that, uh, that, uh, the, that uh, Paul's people were uh, in the, in Galatia were identifying Jesus as an angel, uh, and that there was a development from a, a pre-existent angel idea about Jesus to eventually a more full-blown Christology. Um, the problem with that argument is that it's extremely weak. We have a ton of evidence that Paul saw Jesus as the Son mm-hmm. and the pre-existent Son. We have virtually no evidence that Paul's uh, or Paul's people would have seen Jesus as an angel. So why do you go to the 
the, the, the very weak category that's very poorly attested on a possible way of reading one text and blatantly ignore all the rest of the material that has to do with Jesus' preexistence. Ehrman does affirm Jesus' preexistence. He just doesn't want to have a full-blown uh, Jesus uh, 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 as Yahweh preexistence in Paul. Yeah, not only do I think Ehrman goes to that text, I think he even says that's the key text in the whole debate. Yeah, he puts a lot of weight on it. I mean, it's been a while since I looked at Ehrman, and I, I, to be honest, I read it. I read that portion fairly hastily as, uh, as uh, I had other fish I was trying to fry at the time. But I remember finding it to be just an incredibly implausible uh, suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. When we're talking about the Trinity, one thing is it can get very confusing sometimes to try and explain to people. In my family, for instance, my wife and I. I'm the head and she's the heart, as I say. I'm the brains of the operation. She's the one you go to if you need some comfort and sensitivity because, by golly, I don't really have it. Mm-hmm. And she asks, so where are we talking about the Trinity? And it's like, what do we mean by a person exactly? And that's a really good question. When we say God and three persons, what do we mean? <laughs> yes. Well, this is a theological fight waiting to happen. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, there would be people who are very cautious about this language of person saying that, you know, uh, there's a lot of risk there as we don't want to invest, you know, contemporary ideas about personhood and sort of foist those on the text uh, because the idea of person itself was something that the early fathers who framed the doctrine of the Trinity, they used that language, but it was because they, they had nothing else available. I mean, we have to use some kind of metaphorical language. Uh, I'll circle back to that in a second. But uh, to think about some of the dangers, for instance, um, today we tend to think of person uh, primarily in two ways. One would be um, especially in terms of roles that we play. Uh, we tend to think about what is it fundamentally mean to be a person? Um, well, I, uh, I'm a I'm a businessman, maybe, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a farmer. We tend to think of it occupationally, and we oftentimes wear multiple hats. Right? What kind of person am I? Well, I'm a student uh, by day. I'm a you know a burger flipper by night. Uh, I'm a lover at some other part of the time, and we we jump from one hat to the other as we adopt these different roles. And for us, we construct what it means to be a person very much around this role playing. Um, another way we think about it is is geared towards more psychological ideas uh, about the tr- uh, about personhood as well as sort of the individual center of consciousness uh, that we tend to think that, well, what is a person? Well, it's uh, an individual center of consciousness or awareness uh, that we uh, that we hold autonomously uh, or something like that. Um, neither of those ideas would work very well as we move to talk about the Trinity. Um, and we, when we talk about the idea of personhood with regard to the Trinity, um, the preferred language uh, on the one hand is persona. Uh, when we talk about uh, the Trinity, on the other hand, it's hypostasis, uh, which was uh, a term that the early fathers liked as well. And if we were to, to, to kind of get at what they mean by this, it, they seem to mean a, a, a discrete, a discrete entity uh, or a discrete. Um, um, I'm, I'm even looking for the right terminology myself, but yeah. uh, uh, a discreetly bound entity uh, that is not um, self-contained, but capable of also 
uh, being in communion and being defined uh, vis-a-vis the other. Uh, and so we could talk about them all being in a perichoretic union with one another uh, as we want to talk about their um, personhood being defined primarily through uh, also relationship. So it gets pretty dicey pretty yeah. quickly as we try to as we try to press into these ideas of what specifically we mean by personhood, uh, and uh, it's something that I would actually like to do a little bit more scholarly work on myself, um, as I'd I'd like to continue to press press on the person concept a little bit in some of my own work. Yeah, I think Augustine once said, "I call them persons because I have to call them something." Yes. Yes. Yes, we have to use a metaphor, right? Yeah. I mean that that whenever we we talk about God, we're we're compelled to use metaphorical language. That that there's some language that is uh, that we're invited to to use as sort of God-given metaphorical language. Mm. Um we're invited in, in uh the New Testament, you know, on the basis of Jesus' example, uh to call God Father and to think of him as our as our father too as we're adopted into his family through Christ. Uh and so that's a God-given metaphor. I mean, God is mm-hmm. not He's not literally a father, or what does that word literally even mean, right? Yeah. As, uh, as we, uh, again, like when we say God is father, that's metaphorical language, then we have to realize there's continuity and discontinuity. There are ways in which God is a father and ways in which God is not a father, uh, and that's inherent in any kind of metaphor. There's always going to be continuity and discontinuity. But you're right. We have to call God something. We have to yeah. use human language. Uh, yeah. We we. we we can't we can't use some sort of you know alien language uh, that wouldn't make any sense to us to talk about God. We've got to use the the human language constructs that God has given us. And we have to be clear: even if we don't know entirely how to describe things, we are still affirming the oneness of God. Or we do say there's a multiplicity within him somehow, but we're not tritheist and we're not polytheist. Yeah. Yes, it's good. I mean, we would want to, uh, I think, uh, to remain on the safe bounds of orthodoxy, we would want to re- try to replicate as best we can the language of the Nicene Creed and the Constantinopolitan Creed that talks about God as being three right. hypostasis or, or three personae, uh, and at the same time, uh, the one substance or uh, uh, one essence, you know, and uh, and to think about uh, the idea of their of that oneness, um, uh, that uh, that the Son is homoousius with the Father is the technical mm-hmm. language we have in the Nicene Creed, you know, that helps us to think about the the boundaries uh, of acceptable grammar when we talk about the Trinity. Yeah, <clears throat> now let's start looking at some of the texts that we're used for this. I think this the second chapter is called. Divine Dialogues from the Dawn of Time. I can't but think you were influenced by the Chronicles of Narnia at that time. You know, um, I did think about the Chronicles of Narnia when I penned it. I, I don't remember if I penned it first and was uh, and then was struck by the Narnian connection later or whether it was already in mind when I penned the title, but you're you're right. Uh, it did. Uh, it did it, uh, evoke the echoes of that in my mind as well. As I'm, I'm a huge Lewis fan. Mm. Now the first text I think you go to is one that is an extremely important text in the New Testament. And if people don't realize how important it is, they're really missing it because it's quoted in the Gospels. It's quoted in so many of the epistles. It's quoted in Hebrews. It's I believe it's quoted in Romans and Galatians, but it's the one from Psalm 110. For the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a huge verse in Christian interpretation, isn't it? 
It is, yes. This is uh, the most quoted uh, Old Testament passage uh, in our New Testament. Yeah, you see it all over the early church fathers, too, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, mm-hmm. Origen. Uh, they frequently cite this text. So, now, Jesus is talking to Pharisees, let's say, and they've been trying to stump him with questions. If you ever remember watching any of the late night shows, people was Craig Kilborn, of the five questions. I always looked at this passage as Jesus plays five questions. And for the fifth one, he decides he's going to question his opponents who he's been beating to no end in debate. And says, okay, guys, let me ask you a question. Um, the Messiah, whose son is he? I said, well, he's David's son, obviously. He says, then, but if he's David's son, how can David call him Lord? Because... The problem there would be the Pharisees would have to admit the son of David is greater than David is, and a son couldn't be greater than his father, could he? No, yeah, that's that's a, that's really how the logic of the passage works. Yes, um, and I think that there's sort of an implicit, you know, invitation by Jesus to sort of um, you know, kind of force his opponents to to think on the identity of this. Um, Lord and who it might be, who is this prestigious Lord that is being addressed by the Lord God himself uh, in this kind of emphatic matter. Uh, and uh, it's obvious that uh, Jesus and his audience is inviting him and his audience to deduce that that he is uh, indeed this Lord that is being addressed in the passage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very powerful passage, yes. And no doubt it was Jesus' usage of his passage that would lead so many of the others to including Paul, to look at it regularly and say, let's see what we can get out of this passage. So, what can we get out of this passage? Yeah, so, um, well, I think that uh, as we, if we read the passage with some care, um, I think that we can see that this is um, quite possibly an, ex- uh, an example of prosopological exegesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, many of the early fathers read it this way, and uh, and just to remind ourselves what we mean by this, it would be the idea is that Jesus understands David to be a prophet, mm-hmm. and David as a prophet then was able to slip into an alternative characters and to speak as if from those persons. Uh, so to speak as if from the person of God the Father or the Christ or the people of God or enter into a, a, a lot of different speaking roles from within what I call the theodrama. So, uh, for instance, one possible way of understanding what Jesus has done here is that uh, Jesus explicitly mentions in Mark twelve thirty six that it was by the Holy Spirit that David spoke. Uh, and then as David spoke these words, uh, we then might would maybe understand David himself to be the one who's sort of reporting the setting. When did this all happen? Uh, David saying, the Lord God said to my Lord. And then we get David slipping into the person of God. Uh, and so this would be the first prosopological move that's made here then. And if he's speaking from the person of God, who's he speaking to? Uh, well, he's speaking then to the Christ, uh, to my Lord, the Christ. And so we have him saying this, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, and now he slips into the person of God. Uh, and at speaking as from the person of God, David then says, sit at my right hand. Uh, and uh, he's speaking to the Christ. So sit at my right hand, O Christ, Lord of David, if we're to paraphrase this, mm-hmm. until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So um, we can see then a moment where we have God uh, addressing the Messiah uh, in this uh, uh, in, the, in this Old Testament text, and it seems that Jesus is reading it in that way. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the text gets even more 
confusing later on as the writer of the Hebrews points out because this Messiah figure is also seen as a priest, but the Messiah being the descendant of David would be of a tribe of Judah and priest came from a tribe of Levi. Yeah. Uh, and you're you're picking up on an important detail in the psalm. In Psalm mm-hmm. 110, of course, uh, we have mention of Melchizedek uh, and uh, this text, Psalm 110, and then, of, of course, the passage in, in Genesis 14 uh, would be the only places where we find Melchizedek mentioned. And so mm-hmm. it would seem that, um, that that's the sort of evidence uh, that helps us to recognize that the early Christians were reading these the psalm as a whole. And that when David says the first line of the psalm, I mean, excuse me, when Jesus says the first line of the psalm, Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, that that would have been sufficient to evoke something of the whole of the whole psalm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of the evidence we see is the, the complex ways in which uh, these ideas are combined of priest and king, uh, for instance, by Hebrews. Um, mm-hmm. Great mm-hmm. observation. Yeah, and so what we're being talked about then is that somehow before Jesus ever shows up, God is already pronouncing that he is a Messiah and the king that he is going to reign on David's throne, which means David is talking about a descendant of his who existed even before he was born. And one can easily imagine the Pharisees are in quite a dilemma at this point having to explain this, aren't they? Yes. Um, Yeah, and so, um, yeah, this idea then that God could dialogue with the Messiah uh, uh, even before the Messiah has come on the scene, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, uh, within the bounds of the Old Testament text uh, certainly is suggestive as we think about what it might mean for preexistence. Now, uh, I don't know uh, if you have any thoughts about that, but I mean, what do you think that might mean for preexistence as you're trying to you know, sort of hash through these ideas yourself? I, I think that a lot of times the prophets would speak of future events as if they were happening or as if they were even past tense. And I think Isaiah 53 could be an example of this. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on is there is so much certainty that this is going to happen that that God could just speak there and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. And David can look ahead with assurance based on Prophecies such as what he heard in First Samuel 7 say, yep, when mighty sins is going to sit on the phone forever, and I am looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's possible that we have, yeah, like you said, um, examples where we see the past tense as um, in prophecies as a way of um, sort of certifying that, that they're certain. That's been one um, common explanation, and that might explain a good number of them. Um, one of the interesting possibilities with regard to prosopological exegesis is that um, that it it that the reason we have these tense shifts might not purely be for that reason though, but might have to do with the theodramatic performance itself. Mm-hmm. So that um, we might make a distinction, let's say, between uh, and this is something that I, I draw out in in some detail in the book, but between uh, what we would call the prophetic set, setting, the theodramatic setting, and then the actualized setting of any given uh, oracle. So uh, a prophetic setting for this might be, um, for instance, uh, the time of David. David was a real man. Uh, he received a real vision from God. Uh, and as this part of this visionary experience from God, an oracle was given to him uh, that invited him to step into uh, this role 
uh, and to speak as if from the person of somebody else. Mm -hmm. So David does it, right? He enters into this role uh, of speaking the word of God from this alternative persona. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he's doing that, we might talk about him stepping into the theodrama then. And one one interesting possibility is that once you're in the middle of the theodrama, Mm -hmm. uh, then that could become the new fulcrum around which the tenses pivot. Mm -hmm. So that uh, like, like, let's say you were in a play, let's say you were in a high school play and let's, let's just say you were in, um, Phantom of the Opera, you know, okay. where you could be, you know, in the middle of the second scene, uh, and, but you could be speaking to the characters in the drama about something that happened in the first scene. Mm-hmm. You might refer to it in the past tense, even though it's a present moment of performance for you, right. or you're still speaking in the past tense about something that happened, mm-hmm. or you might look forward to something that's going to happen in the future within the balance of the play itself and use the future tense to refer to some anticipated action within the bounds of the play. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and so the, uh, the world of the play itself becomes the new boundaries around which the tenses are determined. We might have something like that going on in these prophetic oracles where the 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 speech that's been entered into becomes the new boundaries around which the tenses pivot, and that might be why we sometimes find uh, past tense uh, would be uh, partly uh, referring back within the theodrama to a past event. Mm-hmm. And now from Psalm one ten, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump to a related psalm, and one that I'm sure we can talk about Bart Ehrman again with, and that would be Psalm two, especially with the text that so many adoptionists like to use. That you are my son today, I have begotten you. And mm-hmm. they look and say, Well, right there, adoptionism. It's right there in the text. Time to concede. Yes. Um, yeah, Psalm 2 is um, obviously it's a messianic psalm, uh, and we, we recognize that, um, you know, as we're, we're reading through it just on the surface level. Um, uh, as uh, it's fairly obvious uh, in, in the text itself that it has to do with the Messiah, the, the Messiah's mentioned. Um, so, yeah, one, one, one thing that, um, that I noticed as I was doing research on the psalm uh, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting feature in the psalm itself is that, um, is that there's a, a moment of, of not just direct speech in the psalm, but of reported speech. And it's something that's not very often noticed. Um, this is obviously a psalm that's, that's quoted at Jesus' baptism and, and so on and so forth, or at least alluded mm-hmm. to. Um, and uh, one of the things that's interesting is, uh, is within the bounds of the psalm itself, uh, it's the Messiah who's speaking. Uh, when it says, the Lord God said to me, mm-hmm. you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth is your possession. You know, you will rule over them, et cetera, et cetera. Notice what it says. It says, the Lord God said to me, you are my son. Right. So it's not God directly speaking. It's the son who's reporting mm-hmm. what the Lord God said to him earlier. Mm-hmm. Which is which is a very interesting thing uh, in in the psalm, so that it's not a moment of direct speech that the father is directly saying, "You are my son today. I've begotten you." Uh, it's that the father must have said that at some prior occasion, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in order for it to be reported speech uh, that's given by the son. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's something that I noticed as I was working on it uh, that I think points, uh, points uh, us in a different direction than the adoption of solution mm-hmm. uh, because it helps us to see that uh, any reported speech has to happen um, later than the report itself, right? You have to first hear, hear what you're going to report, and then only subsequently can you report it. Right. And I think we'd have a problem with it because – 
the time of Jesus being begotten is usually connected with either his baptism or his resurrection. And yet, when you look at the Gospels, if we're going to take them that way, the Gospels have Jesus being called the Son of God and such before those events happen to me. Especially in Luke's Gospel, you have the, the shepherds hearing a message and about how and Jesus is called both Lord and Christ at that very moment. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that would be additional evidence. I think uh, you're right alongside the idea of um, of it not just being a, a direct speech by God, but a reported speech, which suggests that 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 God had already made this person's son mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, this wasn't happening at the moment of baptism, uh, but in fact, this is a reflection <laughs> of a prior action that the God that God has already done for this son. Yeah. Yeah, that's was, great. There was a time a while back I heard it's an old episode of Unbelief or someone asking James White about Acts 2.36 and saying, we'll see right there, it says that this Jesus has been made Lord and Christ. And I look at that and I say that it can't mean what you think it means if you're because this person was trying to defend the Unitarian perspective. So that would mean that before his resurrection, Jesus wasn't either a Lord or Christ, but he was both of those. What I take it to mean is that by his resurrection, God, in resurrecting Jesus, has vindicated the claims that, yes, this is the Lord and this is the Christ. Yeah, I think that's a solid way to read it. Mm-hmm. Um one of the things that I that I um, try to distinguish as I was working on that passage would be between a concept of being designated Messiah and then being um, installed as Messiah, mm. uh, and that those are um, those are um, the, the, the the idea of becoming king is a complex process, yeah. right? And that um, somebody is anointed as king, but that doesn't mean that they are actually ruling as such yet. Like we think about this with David, right, yeah. where he's anointed by Samuel far before the time in which he actually begins to rule. Yeah. And, um, I can, and I can think, in fact, about uh, kings in Israel who were, such as say, eight years old when they were supposed to take the throne. But no one thinks an eight-year-old is sitting there calling uh-huh. the shots. He's got other people who are kind of representing him in Tirpin. Sure, sure, yeah. So that we could maybe distinguish then uh, in that passage where it talks about Jesus being made both Lord and Christ, um, that uh, we would want to think about that not being necessarily the moment at which he was being designated Messiah for the first time, uh, but this is the moment at which he's being installed as Messiah. Uh, and so that we can we can think about um, the concept of becoming king uh, needs to be given its full its full plastic range that we find in the Bible itself. We can't restrict that to saying like, well, he wasn't the king and now he was made the Messiah and therefore we have an adoptionist situation or something along those lines. I think that's just a really wooden way to deal with those, um, with the concept of messiahship and with those texts. Mm-hmm. Now, my next question is going to have a bit to do with it. So since we're near the halfway point, we'll go ahead and let people know that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. <clears throat> I'm Nick Peters, your host. We've got uh, Matthew Bates here. We're talking about his book, The Birth of the Trinity. Excellent book. I really recommend you get it. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Beth Shepard on from, I believe, Duke University. And we're going to be talking about her book, The, the Craft of History and the Study of the New Testament. How do we study the New Testament using the methodologies of history. So I hope you'll be here for that next week. <clears throat> now, 
And the next question, and this one's probably going to open a whole can of worms here for a lot of people, so let's just dive in and have some fun. I had a debate on my own Facebook page recently break out, which turned out to be over the age of the earth, and I was sitting there just watching for the most part what people were saying until someone mentioned, the best thing we can do is take the scripture in a straightforward, literal manner. And that's when I jumped in and said, okay, this is where things start getting difficult. Now, you got up on page eight when you say, today when a student of the Bible offers a plea, shouldn't we just take this literally? It is presumed that the literal sense of scripture is something simple and obvious. But studies of how the meaning of the literal sense and related ideas such as the historical sense, original sense, and narrative sense have shifted through time and culture so that nothing could be further from the truth. What do you mean exactly? Great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the literal sense is something that is uh, a controversial and convoluted topic, and it's um, something that's typically appealed to by, for lack of better terms, those who are on the traditional end of the spectrum, right? Well, should we all just take this literally? Um, I have students who ask me this question sometimes, and what I usually do is I usually um, press it to the point of absurdity, and it doesn't take long to get there. Uh, I take them to a passage in Isaiah where it talks about you know um, God accomplishing something thing by his strong outstretched arm and i say what is the literal sense of this text mm-hmm. and, and the students are usually like uh i don't know um i don't know <laughs> you know because you know we when we begin pressing this well does god actually have an arm does he have a body right uh and and we begin to well then then we can obviously begin talking about metaphor uh, and then uh, with the realization that, you know, um, most people who would affirm the literal sense affirm metaphor, well, well, then what's the boundary of a metaphor and how do we know when metaphors are, you know, to be um, – uh, uh, what which part of the metaphor are we to understand to have continuity, which part mm. discontinuity? <clears throat> and we can get into all of those kinds of questions. But to circle back, what has happened, I think, um, in uh, more uh, traditionally – uh, traditionally minded approaches to the Bible is that there it is it has been assumed that the literal sense of Scripture is identical to one of two sense, senses of Scripture. One possible sense of Scripture is the historical sense. The other would be the scientific sense. So when people say, "Well, shouldn't we take this literally?" what they what they're doing is they're usually collapsing the literal sense with the historical sense, or collapsing it with the scientific sense, and both of those are seen to be the ultimate purveyors of truth. Mm-hmm. So the literal sense as it's collapsed to the historical sense is a way of making the move of saying what really what what our standard is of ultimate reality and what's really true and what's really real is history. Did it really happen? If it mm-hmm. really happened, then I'm going to grant it the status, I'm willing to grant it the status of true and real. And so whenever I'm asking, did this happen literally? What I mean is, did it really happen in the historical sense? There's a collapsing in that direction, or there's a collapsing towards science. Mm-hmm. These things tend to happen because these are the narratives within the modern world uh, that are the dominant narratives as the purveyors of truth. So that uh, we have this sort of collapsing move to another system. One of the things that's interesting as we go back to the earliest fathers, they just didn't read this way. They didn't collapse the historical sense and the literal sense uh, in this fashion. The early fathers were interested in matters of history, don't get me wrong, um, but they didn't have the same, they didn't want to move outside the text toward another system of verification consistently to say, 
I'm only going to grant that this that what I see in my narrative world is true if I can find if I can referentially locate it outside my text in another system of truth that's even more real. Yeah. Uh, Does that make sense? I'll, I'll stop there and let you ask another question or to follow up. Uh, oh yeah, it makes sense because usually when I get that kind of question, and it's usually implied that the text is clear. When I say okay, clear to who? I mean, I'll go through a long list of. And you can make up the centuries and places by saying, okay, is it clear to a 21st century American, which is what I always start with, a 19th century Japanese, a 17th century Chinese man, a 15th century German, a 13th century Englishman, on and on and on until I get down to a 1st century Jew. Who has the clear meaning of the text? And at that point, most people are going to realize, well, geez, maybe I am reading my culture into the text. And it, it's what she said, the whole scientific thing, that our culture is very scientific. And lo and behold, we get to a text and we read it how? Scientifically. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I like that you go on from there also to talk about uh, offer your intention, which I think a lot of people get confused on they say we we can't go by a for your intention we just have what the text says and we have to stick with, with what the text says yeah i think that's a problematic claim i i, I think that um there have there's been debate within biblical scholarship about the degree to which we should let authorial ten, intention uh lead the way in terms of our um our or hermeneutic or whether or not we are, you know, we, we are just to treat the text as an artifact. And it would be a similar kind of question you might ask of a piece of art, you know, that was hanging on the wall. Uh, if, uh, if I was to walk into an art gallery and I was to be looking at a Monet, uh, and, uh, I was to, to try to appreciate that piece of art, uh, there's a lot of different questions that could be asked of it. One question might be, well, what did Monet intend to do here when, when he was rendering these sunflowers and this, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, smeared way, uh, was he trying to tell me something about uh, the smeared nature of reality? Uh, was he trying to tell me about an uh, interpersonal struggle that he had? Uh, what, what's he trying to communicate by uh, his non-precise rendering of these flowers? This doesn't look like the flower. It's not very real, right? We have a, a lack of realism there, but there's still some sort of referential intention. So one, one place to go would be to say, well, like that's where all the meaning of the painting is, 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 is in Monet's intention behind it. Another way would be to like, no, like what it is is the thing in front of me. I'm going to just appreciate it as the piece of art that's in front of my face. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think with regard to to texts as literary vehicles for meaning, um, we have to, we have to, um, we have to respect authorial intention, partly because the authors are the ones that are embedding the meaning into the text with the intention that we're going to extract it. Mm-hmm. They meant to communicate something to their audiences. They meant their audience to extract a certain kind of meaning. And we have to ask ourselves the question, would Paul have been offended or upset or felt he needed to correct his congregation, let's say, if they had misread him? Mm-hmm. Well, he does feel that way because we know that we know that for a fact. We can look at 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and we can see that Paul was concerned that his audience understand him, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that, that it wasn't all just up to audience appreciation. Um, so I do think that we have to take authorial intention seriously. The question is, which author, right, as we begin to move into complex questions about human authorship and divine authorship, and whether those always perfectly align 
or whether or not we could have um, a or whether we could have dislocation or further layers of meaning uh, that separate authorial intention between the divine and the human authorship. Mm-hmm. And all of this is important for our reading because these ideas that we're having, they aren't explicitly spelled out in the text, which I think many moderns, we tend to think everything has to be spelled out for us immediately. Now, we have to do the work talked about in the book of Job, but we have to go and dig for silver as well, if we're going to study the text, and many times that can mean studying the languages, the culture, everything. Yeah, it does. And so you're right, we have to become culturally aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, with regard to the Trinitarian problem in particular, one of the, one of the questions that, um, that comes to mind is, could God have had intentions beyond what Isaiah or David could have understood? Right. Um, so, for instance, God gives David a vision. And he and he has David stepping into a speaking role within the theodrama. Mm-hmm. Does David have to understand everything he's speaking about? Uh, does he have to understand the full Trinitarian dimensions that he's speaking on behalf of the Son, who is in fact God Himself, or is this something that uh, that uh, it's okay for God to have? allowed that meaning or intended that meaning beyond what David could have understood. Mm-hmm. I'm open to that. I'm open to the idea that God had intentions that would would transcend the human author and that he did, in fact, have intentions that transcended the human author. And that as we look back in the text, we can retrospectively see that God intended things beyond what David could have understood. David's a willing participant in the theodrama, so he's 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 doing what God tells him to do. He's he's obedient to the vision, uh, and he would have had some sense that this corresponds to the promises God had made to his own lineage. Uh, but he couldn't have seen the full Trinitarian dimensions of what we see, uh, as he hadn't he didn't know the future Christ uh, uh, in the same way that 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 we are uh, privy to. Uh, once we have the economy of salvation revealed to us through the incarnation and the sending of the Spirit. I have to say, I think this is <clears throat> actually clearly spelled out in the text. <laughs> in fact, when we get to First Peter 1, where Peter talks to the people in his audience and says, these things that are happening right now, the prophets longed to understand what it was they were talking about, but it wasn't revealed to them. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great text. It's one I like to quote too. So I'm glad you uh, you you've saved me the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now let's talk about also how the incarnation is often spoken about in this way, and uh, we can go to Luke four for this. So you're living in Nazareth. It's time for synagogue, and you go. It's going to be you know probably the way we approach church today. Just go sit down and listen. And, maybe meet with some friends and such and go home. Probably not expecting a lot, but in comes Jesus, and like many visitors, he's allowed to teach from a text, something I sometimes wish would happen today when I'm in church. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad they don't call on me, although after I hear a really bad sermon, you know, sometimes I wish, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so Jesus goes up there, and he reads Isaiah 51 with the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he goes through that text some, and then sits down, and here comes time where people are waiting to hear from a message, and he starts off with, I'm sure it was the biggest bombshell ever dropped in that synagogue, saying, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Yes. 
Yes, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah, yeah, that citation from Isaiah sixty-one is a is a really powerful, uh, really powerful text. Obviously, Jesus understood that as something central to his ministry. Um, yeah, the the spirit is of the Lord is upon me on account of which he has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to send forth the oppressed with pardon, to proclaim the year of the Lord. Yeah, and so we have to wonder as we're reading that passage, right, when it says the spirit of the Lord is upon me, you know, even within the bounds of Isaiah itself, who is the me mm-hmm. uh, that is being referenced? Uh, and, and how do we make sense of that? And then when we have Jesus coming along saying, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, uh, it certainly uh, uh, puts a lot of pressure on us to recognize Jesus as the me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, as uh, as it, it seems beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is intending uh, himself and finding himself in the text, that he is the anointed one mm-hmm. of the Lord spoken of in that passage. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> when we go on, and we look even further from the text, Isaiah is certainly a favorite one, this kind of thing. And when we get to Acts 8, we find that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, a very favorite passage for many Christians today. And Phil comes to him, and the eunuch says, who is, who is this guy talking about? Is he talking about himself? Or someone else. And that seems to imply a sort of prospological understanding going on, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, um, as obviously he's searching for the person, mm-hmm. right? Uh, who's, who's he talking about, you know, himself mm-hmm. or somebody else? Um, and, yeah, there are, di- there are different ways you can construe that. Um, uh, I have an argument in the book that, um, that it could actually be a question that pertains um, uh, not just to um, – to whether or not this uh, has to do with Isaiah proper, um, you know, in the sense of himself or somebody else. Um, but uh, this this actually might be more of a quest for the theodramatic horizon. Uh, it's kind of technical, and I don't know if I could get into it. I, I show some evidence from the early fathers uh, that uh, that might be a, uh, a possible way to read it. But certainly I think you're right. The text does um, suggest a prosopological dimension, no matter which way we take the text. And this is especially common in the book of Isaiah, once we get to, say, a 40th chapter or so, we keep hearing mm-hmm. talk about the mm-hmm. servant, and you even get the passage like, say, Psalm, I mean, Isaiah forty-eight seventeen, I think it is, where you have all three persons showing up in the text itself, and especially if you're dealing with the anti-missionary crowd out there that wants to keep people in Judaism and such, that it's very heated to debate who the servant is exactly. Yeah, um, I, I don't have that text on the top of my brain uh, to be able to quote it uh, to you, but um, you're right. Obviously, as we uh, within the bounds of Isaiah itself, who the servant is is a mystery. On the one hand, the servant is clearly uh, spoken of as Israel, right? I mean, we have that explicitly mentioned uh, in it's Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 44, I believe, in uh, uh, some other places as well, where um, it's, it's very clear that the servant is Israel. Uh, but then we um, we also find passages where the role of the servant clearly devolves past Israel because the servant's job is to rescue Israel mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. That, um, that helps us to see that um, on the one hand, while well, the servant is Israel, on the other hand, the servant can't be identical to Israel if the servant's job is to rescue Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of people have suggested that this, this, this could be a kingly role. 
uh, as we have uh, the representative figure then uh, that uh, can can stand as the figurehead of the nation. Who better to do so than the king? Uh, and uh, so maybe the suffering servant is a kingly figure. Uh, there are a number of signals in the text of Isaiah itself, uh, I think, that lend, lend themselves to that conclusion, that the servant is a kingly figure as that role devolves onto the servant. I just looked up a verse here. It's not verse 17. It's verse 16 of Isaiah 48. It says, Come near me and listen to this. For my first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his spirit. Mm. Yeah, that's a good passage. Yeah. Now, when I've read the servant passages, my taking has been that I think for the most part we can say that this is indeed Israel being spoken of. I'd have no problem with that, but then say, and yet Jesus is the true Israel. So Jesus coming forward as Israel to save Israel. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, well, obviously, if it says the sovereign Lord has sent me, yeah, obviously, mm-hmm. the me can't be the sovereign Lord yeah. uh, with his spirit. Uh, obviously, it's not the spirit, so the me uh, is obviously uh, Israel in some senses in the form of the servant, which we might mm-hmm. see that role devolving on the king mm-hmm. uh, as the representative of Israel. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great passage. I don't think I mentioned that passage in the book anywhere. I should have, uh, as uh, it's an obvious passage for prosopological um, – uh, purposes in terms of uh, a text that sort of exploits a, a, a healthy tr- trinitarian grammar. Uh, so thanks for pointing that out. Uh, if I did talk about it, I've forgotten it uh, because I wrote most of this material about four years ago. So you know, not all of it is right on the tip of my brain the way that it should be. Yeah, I'm actually going to be the back right now to see if you did mention. But I think it's important to point out that. Uh, no one could have, and yeah, it's not in here in the back. So that, that's, yeah. for, that's for a future update. Yes, yes, exactly. For the second edition of the book, you know, and I'll cite, I'll cite you. Uh, as, you. Uh, you know, as, uh, as very helpfully pointing me to that verse. Yeah, we'll be glad to talk about it on the show again. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I think it's important to point out that when you go into a book like this, that no one in writing any sort of book of this thing could say that we have exhausted the ideas entirely. I mean, I think one of the only cases I think it could be mentioned as an example would be how when Murray Harris wrote Jesus as God and pointed out nine specific passages where Jesus is explicitly called God in him and looked at him. Okay, that one you got a very limited set, but with this, there's probably many, many more places that aren't covered. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, that's part of the nature of the work, too, as mm-hmm. I, I'm, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, there's no one else who has written specifically on prosopological exegesis uh, and looking at early Christian appropriations of it and, and, and how uh, you know, early Christians were interpreting the Old Testament in this prosopological way. Uh, other than some of the stuff I mentioned at the beginning of the show, where it's been more the uh, people who have been interested in the early fathers, uh, but there's mainly been the third and fourth century fathers, kind of origin and and onward. Uh, they haven't really gone back into the New Testament itself, and, and so there's there's no doubt that I don't even begin to exhaust it, especially as I focus more on explicit citation, and not on more nebulous categories such as allusion or echo. That uh, that undoubtedly feature prosopological exegesis frequently. Uh, if I would have tried to be exhaustive, my book would have been, you know, I'm sure a thousand pages, and uh, and I would still be writing it uh, rather than having <laughs> it out for us to talk about. 
Yeah, I, I think what you could say your message to your fellow scholars would be the same one that Morpheus gave to Neo of, I can show you the door, but you must walk through it. Uh, yeah, well, I'm hoping other scholars will join me in uh, exploring prosopological exegesis and theodramatic, you know, readings uh, in general. As I think it's, uh, you know, a, a hopefully a, an avenue of study that's just now opening up, and I think lots of work to be done there. Undoubtedly, I'll find myself circling back to it in due course. Right now, I'm I'm uh, have been working on a a project more on salvation theory. Uh, mm-hmm. So I I've had my my head elsewhere. I haven't been really working on this uh, this material mm-hmm. uh, in my my most recent scholarship, but I I do plan on circling back to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since you mentioned Origen, Origen later on, you know, your book gets in debate with one of his heretical opponents, who is in fact also engaging in this theodramatical reading. And Origen saying, "No, you're doing it wrong." Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Origen has his uh, his theory about how um, prosopological exegesis should be done. Um, and uh, and uh, part of that is um, uh, uh, something that I mine a little bit in my last chapter of the book where I kind of move from just doing historical description to a more explicit methodology. Uh, it, how how can this be defended as a good reading, right? Uh, right. Origin, Origin's ready to defend it, uh, and uh, I think that uh, he and Irenaeus and some others give us um, some interesting and, and I think sound places uh, to start our own defense, although I don't know that, uh, that they give an exhaustive defense, nor do I in the book. But uh, at least I think maybe a trajectory around which these kinds of readings could be defended as valid readings of the text. Yeah, I, I think there can be a danger to think that anything goes. And yes. Yeah, yeah I, I'm reminded of this old idea that I heard that once the rabbis had said there were 49 ver- different interpretations of every verse in Torah. And so a student comes forward and gives his interpretation and he says, sorry, that's incorrect. Said, you said there were 49 different interpretations. Yes, and yours isn't one of them. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's uh, that's probably true. Is I mean, it, a good biblical exegesis is always a matter of assessing probability. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can have some passages where we're we you know approach one hundred percent certainty that a text has to you know has to mean a certain kind of thing. It's grammar and it's syntax. Mm-hmm. It's you know the semantic range of the words. Leave no doubt. In other cases, well, we're 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 constructing probabilistic arguments saying that in all likelihood this passage means this, and I can show you why it's more probable than other readings, mm-hmm. uh, but we can't get to that 100% certainty, uh, which is why we can maybe sometimes have 49 different interpretations, and it's actually true. Number 49 might have a you know, 0.05% chance of being right, uh, and uh, part of good biblical scholarship is learning – you know how to how to rank those appropriately, right? And mm-hmm. learning learning when um, uh, when and why certain kinds of uh, exegetical decisions are more probable than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, before we go further, I need to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Everything we do here <clears throat> is listener supported, and we depend on people like you. If you want to support us, and please, please do consider it. We really need it. Go to deeperwatersapologetics.com, and if you look down the sidebar on the left, you'll find a section that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click in the link in there, where it says the link to make a donation can be found here, you'll be taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. 
Have you gone to the right place? Yes. If you're familiar with the show, you know that Mike and Debbie Lacona, who run that ministry, are my in-laws. Allie and I have been married about six and a half years or so. As she hasn't killed me yet, somehow, by the grace of God. And you make your donation through them. And then it's very important. You have to get in touch with them or me, or Allie, one of the four of us. Because if you don't make get in touch with us, they won't know. And say, hey, I made that donation, but I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation, and it will be tax-deductible, and it would be a great blessing to us. Now, there are other things you can do as well. I have some e-books on Amazon, such as um a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, the only one I've written exclusively as of yet. I've, I've got quite a few others I've started writing, but I haven't gotten around to doing the work on extensively. But that one is the one I've written exclusively by myself. And there are others I've co-written. Defining Inerrancy is one. That's going to be a pretty big one again soon, I think. And... Uh, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, there are a few others as well. You buy any of those, yeah, I get a little bit from it, and I appreciate it. And then there's one more way. Our friend Lena Cluster runs a sort of jewelry store, and she's willing to sell on our behalf. The access code is LOVE. Ask me if you need some help. And guys, this, this one can really work for your benefit, because I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but for the most part... Women tend to like to get jewelry. And you can go, you can buy a piece of jewelry for that lady in your life. 25% of what you purchase would go towards deeper waters. So, when I ask you guys, you can buy something to make up for that big screw-up that you recently did. Or, you can buy something to make up for that big screw-up that you're going to do. Because, yes, I know you're going to do one just like I am going to do one sometime. Now, Dr. Bates, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Oh, great question. Um, I don't really have a favorite charity. I, I think there's a lot of great Christian ministries out there to support. I, I've uh, sometimes supported Wycliffe Bible Translators, as I think their missionaries are very dedicated to what they do. Uh, and I think it's a great ministry. Um, so I would maybe give a shout out to them. Uh, but uh, obviously, I think there's a lot of uh, humanitarian concerns right now um, with the refugee crisis. You could give to Samaritan Purse or uh, other uh, organizations that are helping to deal with the refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, guys, if you want to, get look at Wycliffe Bible Translators or Samaritan's Purse, either one right now to help out. But now let's get back into the book. Now, when we start talking about origin, when he was writing, he was talking about a passage of a theodramatic drama that isn't as pleasant, because not everything is rainbows and puppies in the land of theodramatic reading. You get passages where you say, they hated me without cause, or I can think of Zacharias as, they will look upon me for one they have pierced. Mm-hmm. Not everything's sunshine and rainbows uh, here, is it? No, no, and uh, uh, you're right. I think some of these passages are... Um, are ones that are theodramatic uh, 
stepping into uh, performances that are David's performances or Isaiah's performance as they're stepping into the person of Christ as Christ is suffering uh, or is looking back on his sufferings, one or mm-hmm. the other. Uh, I gathered those together and uh, it was the fourth chapter, Cross-Shaped Conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, a whole variety of them. Some of the, of course, more famous ones uh, would be Psalm 22, mm-hmm. uh, Psalm 69, uh, uh, would be a couple of the ones that are, you know, some really prominent uh, psalms that feature a suffering, a suffering servant, but that we have uh, pretty clear theodramatic readings of in the early church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's pretty interesting that you point to Psalm 22 as an example of this. I've been doing a lot of reading in this area lately because uh, next month, Michael Brown, who by the way is going to be on our show in on April 8th for those interested. He's a very famous Messianic Jew about books like, like uh, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus and such, and he's going to be debating Norman Asher at a university here on if Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And when I know a debate like this is coming on, I usually want to ask the opponent something, so I'll go and order their book from a library and read it, or at least one of them. And so I ordered Asher Norman's book, train wreck by the way if anyone's interested just go to my blog total train wreck and anyway he and someone else he relies on later on who i went to order their book also they both look at psalm 22 and say we receive jesus quoted this and he's saying my god my god why have you forsaken me what kind of person is jesus here and and i'm looking and thinking have you ever noticed how the psalm ends yeah yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, the psalm certainly ends on a much cheerier note, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, we have uh, the end of the psalm, um, uh, the rescue of the servant who's crying out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, our New Testament authors notice this. Uh, they mm-hmm. they seem to, especially the author of Hebrews, uh, seems to uh, have an interpretation uh, that uh, very much suggests that he has noticed this and picked up on it. Uh, it's in conjunction with his reading of Isaiah. It's kind of complicated, Isaiah 8, um, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, 11 through 13. Um, but yeah, the, the final vision then is actually of uh, this suffering servant figure leading forth in praise mm. uh, as he leads forth the congregation in praise of God, and so that the praise of God ends up redoun- uh, kind of resounding out to the ends of the earth, because uh, uh, God has uh, performed form this mighty rescue. So you're right. Um, this cry of dereliction needs to be framed uh, within the whole psalm. And one possible way of making sense of the psalm is that is that Jesus, as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is deliberately stepping into a theodramatic script, mm-hmm. uh, that he was aware that uh, David had spoken prophetically in the person of the Messiah uh, of this suffering, and that he willingly embraces it, knowing that this is his story, that he's living out, uh, and uh, proceeds to live it out. And as he does so, lo and behold, uh, the various other portions of the psalm, uh, you know, the, the people who are you know, who are um, you know, casting lots for the garments and who are mocking and, uh, and uh, the piercing and all of these things uh, come to pass uh, just as we would have expected on the basis of the psalm itself. Mm-hmm. I think we can easily lose sight when we look at Paul's writings about how much he really did know about historical Jesus and how much his interpretations came from the historical Jesus, because I have to say the reason 
that this text was looked at this way is because they start with Jesus. And it's interesting you go to the rescue thing because your very next chapter out of this is praise to the rescue about how the rescue did take place by, by the father of the son, in this case. And the 22nd Psalm is a classic example of this. Yes, yes. Um, and there are other psalms, too, that were read prosopologically in this way. Um, like, for instance, um, uh, Psalm, well, it's actually Psalm 116, as we find it in our scripture today, um, which uh, was actually um, two psalms in the Greek tradition. It was Psalm 114 and 115 uh, in the, the old yeah. Greek tradition, the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Paul quotes from that uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 4. It's this very short quote. Um, Paul is in the middle of, you know, kind of talking about the grueling nature of the Christian ministerial life and how it's a matter of, of you know, of, of being crushed. Uh, and, uh, and that this is all something, though, that is part of the authenticity of the message, uh, is that, uh, that we know we're following Christ when we have this cruciform-shaped ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's in the midst of that he quotes the psalm very briefly. It's just three words in Greek, uh, but it, uh, in the English translation, it's I, traditionally translated, I believed, therefore I spoke. Um, yeah, one of the things that's interesting is as you go back and you read that whole psalm, this I believed, therefore I spoke, uh, is actually the words of the suffering servant as the suffering servant is crying out for rescue. Uh, as the suffering servant uh, uh, cries out to God, for deliverance, as it's the suffering servant is experiencing anguishes, you know, under the point of death, uh, and uh, and even uh, you know uh, ex- experiences that can be com- compared to Hades mm-hmm. or the suffering of Hades, uh, and is uh, subsequently rescued uh, after trusting uh, in the bounds of the psalm itself. So, yeah, that would be one place we see it in Paul. Uh, we also see it in Romans fifteen nine, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a one of these passages that uh, speak about. Um, uh, about the righteous person uh, after rescue crying out uh, uh, to God uh, and then uh, being able to proclaim praise uh, and to be able to profess God among the nations and to sing God's praise. Uh, and we see this, um, uh, for instance, in Romans fifteen nine with the, salt, the citation of uh, Psalm, um, uh, I guess it would be Psalm uh, 18 in the English translation, Psalm 17 in the Greek translation. It's not a sharp happen. There you go on to talk about triumph but not only is the son rescued but he triumphs and the two texts i think you really point to the most for this and the fascinating thing about both of these texts is they are parlene which means they're from our earliest christian author and they quite likely have material that is even before paul himself that he's mm-hmm. using because the audience knows about them and that would be romans 1 3 through 4 and philippians 2 6 through 11 mm-hmm yeah, um, yeah, those are both helpful texts. I, I think that um, Romans 1, 3 through 4 is such a compressed text. When you read it, in, uh, especially re- when you read it in English today, it's oftentimes you know, paraphrased in places. But when you read it in Greek, it's very, very uh, carefully wrought and very, very compressed language that uh, I think you can argue that Paul expands elsewhere in Romans. Um, and uh, this language then uh, speaks about, you know, God's son, you know, in as much as it pertains to his flesh, that he came into existence by means of the seed of David, you know, but as it pertains to the spirit of holiness, he was appointed son of God in power. 
uh, by means of his resurrection from among the dead. So it's this very compressed language that he uses to speak about um, about Jesus. And then when we get to Philippians 2, I think, I think Dunn's interpretation of this actually is that this is supposed to be Adam yeah. in description. Mm-hmm. And I just look and I say, I have no idea how you can look at this and think Adam. Uh, well, there's a there's an ongoing fight about that amongst biblical st- scholars as to whether or not we see an Adam Christology here. And, you know, the, the court of opinion is split. Um some people will want to see an Adam Christology and, and you know and, and see this referring to Jesus obviously too yeah. and and one in the pattern of the other. I, I do think that it um, uh, my my leaning right now is to not read it in that direction. Um, but certainly this language then uh, in the Philippians uh, hymn uh, uh, you know or the so-called Philippians hymn, um, some of that does you know parallel the ideas that we find in in Romans one three through four. Yeah. Uh, and we have this kind of V-shaped pattern would be a way of talking about it, where we have, you know, this um, exalted figure uh, who, you know, is uh, in the very nature of God or somehow connected with God, but, you know, not grasping tightly to that, but descending, you know, and descending even to the point of death and then being exalted. Well, we see actually uh, in um, in Romans 1, 3 through 4, the idea of uh, the Son of God, who then you know uh, comes into existence in the line of David, uh, the idea that he was already the Son, but he descends by taking on human flesh, uh, but then he's exalted after the resurrection and installed in a position of glory as Son of God in power. Yeah, there's some interesting uh, correlations between the uh, between the, the, the two texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing is, again, though, that's still. Both these texts in a way they've historically been translated, it's still an early high Christology, and it fits in just perfectly with a theodramatic reading, doesn't it? Well, yeah, the readings themselves are not theodramatic in these in these particular passages, but uh, the conclusions that one would um, uh, would draw from these passages about Jesus's preexistence dovetails perfectly with prosopological exegesis and the idea that. Um, within prosopological exegesis, well, why why would we understand this person being spoken to as divine in some sense? Well, partly because if if David is slipping into the person of the future Messiah, right, and this future Messiah is having a conversation with God, it suggests that this first this this future Messiah has some kind of ontological status as a real being, uh, mm-hmm. so much so that this person can already speak to God about the, the future cross uh, and about his being begotten before time and all kinds of things. Things uh, that seem to smack of this uh, this person's divinity. Um, so you're right. I think that it it does dovetail very nicely with um, the results from prosopological exegesis. You know, when we talk about the uh, the people are speaking in a sort of prophetic position. One text that's been in my mind, not biblical text, but a scholarly text, is how uh, Ben Witherington in his work Jesus the Sage could even write about how prophets would sometimes be father of going into a sort of trance state and mm-hmm. speaking and how do you think that would that would fit with your idea of being able to see behind the curtain and such yeah i've never you know the the quality of the visionary experience is not something i've probed very much um yeah there are other people who have written on this uh, my doctoral 
a supervisor. In fact, David Ani wrote um, a lengthy book. I can't think of the name of it, but it was like Prophecy in Early Christianity or something like that. Um, you know, and I'm interested in such matters, but I, I guess I don't have a really strong theory of, um, of how uh, these these kinds of visionary experiences. Um, uh, what, what the material reality would have looked like or the on-the-ground reality. Uh, I guess it doesn't – to me, I, I haven't really um, – I haven't seen a strong um, connection between that and the mode of prosopological exegesis that I felt that – I, I felt compelled to explore that more. Um, however the prophecy was delivered and whatever the visionary experience would have been like, to me, it, 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 uh, it must have had a visionary quality sufficient to allow prosopological exegesis. Uh, but whether it was a trance, uh, how you compare this to, you know, kind of ancient, you know, um, phenomenon of trances and of, you know, like you can get into the Pythia and all kinds of, of things uh, with regard to ancient theories of inspiration – um, I haven't I haven't probed that much in relationship to this hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Now, after a, a lot of us talk about reading, something that we hear that earlier is that some people could say, well, anything goes, I guess. I mean, you could take any text and say, this is a theodramatical reading, and you're off to the races. But you point out there were guidelines for this kind of reading, weren't there? Yeah, um, yeah. This is something that I mainly do in the last chapter, and as a way of um, making it a little less tendentious and a, a little bit less like, well, here I'm going to just tell you uh, how this should be done. Um, I I chose to 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 explore what ancient readers said about uh, prosopological exegesis and what kind of critical controls they gave uh, as a way of framing um, how we might think about going about it ourselves. So my my champion in this in this regard then is Irenaeus, mm-hmm. uh, who who does speak quite a bit about prosopological exegesis. He uses it uses it himself extensively. Uh, and of course, Irenaeus was in competition with the Gnostics, uh, and they were competing over the legitimacy of of how to read uh, primarily the Old Testament, but the New Testament to a degree as well, or things that would come to be termed our New Testament. And um, uh, the interpretive strategy of Irenaeus uh, and of Origen, as as we kind of look together at them, I, th- I think is instructive. One of the things that, of course, Irenaeus points out is that. Um, is that we have to presuppose a larger divine economy um, mm-hmm. and that we have to respect the literary sequence of the text. So he was interested, the way he talked about this specifically was through the hypothesis, uh, the economy, and the recapitulation. Uh, and uh, he, he wanted to argue that all literary works have a hypothesis or, or a gist, you know, or kind of a master plan by which they're arraigned, arra- w- 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 the work is arranged. Uh, they also have a larger economy or economies that, um, that uh, are used to organize the material. And then there's a, a recapitulation where you kind of uh, 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 sum back up your strongest arguments rhetorically. And he says that the scriptures have this kind of thing too, as the divine author wanted to use this this kind of structure also. Um, and so uh, the recapitulation then he understands to be uh, the, the gospel or the story of Jesus himself uh, as uh, the, the kind of crowning uh, point. So it, it's really as we mobilize those uh, that I think that we can, um, uh, working within those boundaries, uh, think about some sensible <laughs> constraints on prosopological exegesis. What, do you, what would you say to people who are concerned about this kind of being and say, 
shouldn't we stick to what's known as the grammato-historical method of reading scripture instead of these kind of new ideas and such? Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing I would point out is certainly our, our uh, none of our early church uh, readers read that way. Our New Testament authors didn't read that way. Uh, you know, Justin Martyr didn't read that way. Irenaeus didn't read that way. Origen doesn't read that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get anyone reading that way and, until arguably, you know, really this this the seventeenth century. Um, even the so-called, you know, Antiochene school, you know, where, where where you have various people like Chrysostom and and other people who are known to favor something that might you know, have some correlation to the grammatical historical method. They're not really doing that. Um, they're interested in what's called the history of the text for sure. Uh, but that was really the, that was really the narrative sequence of the text. It wasn't equivalent to what we would call the historical sense today. Um, there's a lot of problems with sliding those things together, uh, in simplistic ways. So uh, I would argue that um, you would be cutting yourself off from the first 1,500 years of early Christian uh, development and theology if you're not willing to embrace these kinds of methods. Are you really sure that modernism is that sound, mm-hmm. right, uh, that, uh, that you would want to cut yourself off from, from these reading methods? Ultimately, I think if you do, uh, you'll find you've cut yourself off from the doctrine of the Trinity, from early Christology, uh, from our, our most secure um, – early conciliar decisions, do you really want to cut yourself off from those? Yeah. yeah. Just uh, thing was, <clears throat> last month I finished reading a book. We're still working on the MV authors on, they're definitely interested. At least one of them is. I mean, Randy Richards has been on before. He's saying Brandon O'Brien, I want to take this one, but I was finished reading that book, Paul Behaving Badly, mm-hmm. and one of the things they says, if we judged Paul with his hermeneutics by the way that we do modern hermeneutics today, Paul would most likely flunk any class took on hermeneutics. He'd say, Paul, you are really taking this text out of context right here. And yet we'd look at Paul today and say, Paul is one of the best exegetes of the Old Testament there was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, you're right. I mean, that that's... Uh, things are changing. Um, But I think 20 years ago, uh, Randy Richards' comment was was certainly apropos that that I think um, anyone who exegeted like Paul would have flunked uh, an exegesis or hermeneutics class. Uh, There's an increased awareness today that that perhaps the grammatical historical method um, uh, has uh, uh, some some tendencies to Mm -hmm. to uh, to to, to value certain portions of uh, referentiality in ways that are inappropriate. Um, and right. This kind of circles back into our earlier conversation about uh, what counts as a literal reading and, and the tendency to slide together what we would call the narrative sequence of the text or the poetic sequence of the text uh, and, uh, and the histor- and historicity of the text and to treat those as the exact same thing. Um, there's some problems with that. Um, and I think that part of the problem is that it doesn't give due weight to literary art and how literary art and referentiality interface with one another. Yeah, I think part of it is also we think the text can sort of stand by itself in isolation. Uh, on April 29th this year, we're going to be interviewing Jason Georges. He's a co-author of a book, Ministering in Honor, Shame, Cultures. And when I wrote my reviews, one of the things I said along him is, our culture has become 
so enamored with itself that we actually think that every other culture in the world is just like us. Mm-hmm. And if we go to the biblical text, which wasn't written in a culture just like ours, and read it as if this is a culture just like us, and just take the text at that value about understanding the culture, we will really misread the text. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I, I think there are boundaries that we can um, mm-hmm. that we can use to to you know weigh some of this. Um, yeah. uh, and I, I think that, for instance, you know, our ancient readers uh, were interested in respecting the, the literary sequence of the text. You know, that you couldn't just willy nilly uh, plug in whoever you wanted into the text and and claim that you know this is one of the the, the great power speaking uh, because that would uh, you know be plugged into the text and have no possible. Uh, a way of being located within the bounds of the literary sequence, and they wanted to prioritize the prophet's own setting. Um, but one of the things that they were willing to do was to say that that sometimes the prophet's own setting doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like in Acts chapter two, uh, you know, whenever um, uh, we have the uh, Peter in his Pentecost sermon and he's exegeting um, Psalm sixteen, right. you know, and and he talks about how. Um, you know, David. Uh, uh, when David is speaking this psalm, uh, that David uh, speaks and he talks about how his body won't see decay, right? And um, you know, and as Peter's reflecting on this, he says, you know, this can't be David. David can't be speaking in his own person because mm-hmm. we know that David's body experienced decay. And so, you know, he the the psalm itself forces you to go beyond the bounds of the psalm in search of a of a theodramatic solution because the the leading speaker of the psalm or the one that would be purported to be his own speaker, David, it doesn't make sense within the boundaries of his own life. Mm. So uh, the text itself sort of forces our hand and, uh, and, and compels us to go looking beyond the boundaries of the text. So one of the guidelines we can use is we can say, does this oracle make sense for Isaiah to have spoken it from his own person? Does this text make sense for David to have spoken it from his own person? If it doesn't, uh, well, then we might be dealing with prosopological exegesis, or we can make a stronger case for it. We could say it's more likely that David was slipping into an alternative persona here as God was giving him a, a vision and and asking him to speak from this alternative person. Yeah, I, I think there's a humorous irony here, because I've been really caught up, as you can imagine, in the inerrancy debates Mm-hmm. Defending Mike Lacona is uh, quite important to me in this. And the whole thought oftentimes is that we have to go with kind of a historical grammatical reading in order to stay true to the text and defend inerrancy. But yet if we look at what Peter says, he goes to the prosopological reading because he already believes in the inerrancy of the Old Testament and that's what he has to do to defend it because it says, hey, look, if we could take this in a straightforward sense... We know it doesn't work because David's still dead. His body saw decay. So obviously, this has to be something else. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's certainly clear that it, it's um, that Peter is not thinking in terms of, of modern ideas of what counts as an error and doesn't count as an error. Right. Uh, we could we could all certainly agree with that, mm-hmm. right? And um, and obviously, the inerrancy debate has been bound up with modernist ideas right. about about what counts as errors and doesn't count as errors. And so, uh, it's very clear that Peter understands this text to be inspired, uh, and within the within the boundaries of what it it might have meant in the ancient world for this text to be error free, um, we would want 
say that Peter would certainly have wanted to affirm that scripture uh, that that scripture doesn't err in that kind of way. This was common to all Jews of of this time period uh, who were readers. If uh, evidence for this would be, for instance, in James Kugel's um, uh, terrific book, whatever that. Whatever that book is called, it's on my shelf. I, I have to turn around and look at it. But Traditions of the Bible, I think, is the name of it. Uh, uh, and, uh, I mean, he, he shows that uh, he looks at the vast swaths of, of, uh, of exegesis of the, Old, uh, of the Old Testament by New Testament authors or by Second Temple Jewish authors or by early Christian authors beyond the bounds of the New Testament. And he shows that a common presupposition for all of them is that, that, is that, that our texts do not err. Mm-hmm. But, of course, these are ancient ideas of errors and not modern ideas, and the whole debate about inerrancy has gotten caught up in more modern ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for anyone interested in a little bit more about how this works, since I've already mentioned, I'll go ahead and tell people, we're going to have Mike Lacona come on here in a couple of weeks, and he's going to be talking about <clears throat> his new book, about why are there differences in the Gospels, and his look at Plutarch to explain this. Uh, yeah, it's uh, James Cougar Traditions of a Bible. I just looked it up. That's yeah. K-U-G-E-R for anyone interested. Yeah, so, he calls, I think he just calls <laughs> us that the, 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 they, they saw it as perfect. They saw the scriptures as perfect, I think is his preferred terminology. Mm-hmm. But it clearly would entail an ancient idea of inerrancy. Yeah. So when someone gets your book then, since <clears throat> we're wrapping up here, what is the main thing you would hope they get out of it? And how do you hope they approach the scriptures differently when they're done? Well, one of the things that was important to me as I wrote the book was that it it was, you know, in a sense, my own exploration of my own love for God and of the Trinity and Mm -hmm. and my wanting to to share the ways in which I was reading the text that fueled my own devotion for God. I do hope that people um, can sense that when they read it. Uh, I've had a number of people, you know, without my prompting who have have shared with me like oh, I really could sense your love of love for God in the text and uh, that was very affirming to me mm-hmm. uh, that people were able to detect that devotional quality mm-hmm. uh, you're not really supposed to do that in an Oxford monograph uh, but uh, I, I, I feel like uh, it, it in a sense overflowed from uh, who I am and for my love for God and I think that it is there in the text although it's um, it's maybe subtle so I hope that it does stimulate other people to um, to a love of the triune God that would be my largest possible aim, but mm-hmm. I hope it also helps people to be better readers of Scripture. Um, I think that an awareness of prosopological exegesis as a, as a trick in the tool bag, being aware that New Testament and early Christian authors were using this technique to read the Old Testament and uh, and beginning to look for it, to look like, yeah. is this a place where somebody is stepping into another character? Uh, is this help us make sense of the text as we find it? Oh, it just makes us more accurate readers of Scripture. Uh, and uh, and more uh, able to correctly extract the theology of Scripture, all of which is important to me. So there's there's certainly just a level of you know, on the level of, of of clarity and of getting it right and becoming uh, more accurate and better readers of Scripture. That I hope this 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 book does something uh, to stimulate. Uh, and then finally, there's kind of a, there is a polemical dimension to some of it, as I think that I am hoping that this book does something to. Um, 
to close off um, developmental ideas of Christology that I think are dangerous, not because it would be dangerous if it was true, uh, but dangerous because I think they're quite frankly wrong. Uh, <clears throat> that our earliest Christology is the highest Christology, that we, we clearly see this in Paul. And, um, and I think that this book, uh, my hope is that it will add something to that discussion, and it will uh, be, be one of many uh, planks uh, that, are, that are put together in the case against uh, a early developmental Christology. I think it's, it's, we have a, a, a much stronger case can be made for an early high Christology. Yeah, and I do think if anyone out there is interested in Trinitarian apologetics, this is one that you should definitely add to your must-read list. And like I said at the start, and I opened this book, I thought that, you know, I've read a lot of New Testament scholarship, and I was thinking, there's not too much that's entirely, entirely new. Then I started hearing about post-logical reading and theodramatical reading, I thought, okay, this is something I hadn't considered before, but then as I started going through and seeing what you talked about, yeah, I've always known about this, I think. I just didn't know that this is what it was called. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it will be new for a lot of readers. I think, I think um, you know, it's um, something that was, whenever I first began to encounter some of this material, was new to me. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason, you know, I was excited to pass along the things that I was finding as it was stimulating to me and uh, and helped me to become a better reader of Scripture. As Scripture says, a good student shares everything with his teacher <laughs> and with everyone else, for that matter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, for anyone interested right now, I've got my uh, Kindle open where I'm looking at the Amazon page. And you can look at The Birth of the Trinity by Matthew Bates, B-A-T-E-S. The Kindle version is twenty six fifty five right now, as of this recording. The hardcover is thirty five eighty five, and the paperback is twenty seven ninety five. A little bit pricey, but if the Trinity is something that you're really passionate about, and I would hope it is... This is something that you should add to your to-read list, definitely. Well, Dr. Bates, we're unfortunately coming to close. I have to say this has been a rather enjoyable conversation and such. I have loved this back and forth that we've had here. Um, do you have a, a blog or website where people can get in touch if you want to find out more? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Well, I just wanted to say thank you because I've really enjoyed the conversation as well. As uh, you're, you're obviously uh, very, very well read on New Testament studies and have a lot of insight that you get to bring, uh, you know, to the conversation, and and that's um, that's a great service. So I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so it's been really fun, and I, I've, I've I've enjoyed the dialogue. Uh, yeah, I do have a personal website. It's it's uh, MatthewWBates.com. All just run together as as one word, uh, and that's just a little bit about you know some of my publications. Um, and a, a little, you know, kind of personal bio. I don't do a whole lot with that website, uh, but I may in the future. I intended it as a blog, but I've gotten swept up with other uh, responsibilities, so I haven't done much blogging. Um, I do have a, a, something I'm more actively working with, though, uh, called um, uh, On Script, which is my own podcast I host uh, that uh, you can find on iTunes or, or whatever. Uh, and the website for that is www.onscript.study, uh, where you can find interviews that I've done with a whole bunch of other biblical scholars, everyone from Richard Hayes to John Barclay to Mike Gorman and a whole, whole bunch of uh, biblical scholars. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, um, then uh, I, uh, I hope you can check that out. 
I have to say, I'm very impressed and surprised because you managed to mention three scholars that I haven't even yet got to have on my show yet. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm a as a biblical scholar, I have a sort of an inside track of field as I I, I know a, a lot of these people through professional conferences, mm. and uh, you know, and other kinds of scholarly interactions. So, um, so in a sense, that uh, you know, when you're an insider to the field, you you may have some connections that um, that others don't. But you obviously have wonderful, wonderful guests on your show all the time. Uh, so uh, you've uh, uh, you've made yourself an insider, even if you began as an outsider. Uh, so uh, you're doing a terrific job, Nick, and uh, appreciate being on your your show. Yeah, wonderful guest, case in point, right here. And yes, I've looked up. On script, and you do have a number of great guests there. So, when you're looking at the Deeper Waters podcast, look up on script as well. Now, do you have any final message you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience? Well, uh, continue to pursue the love of God in Christ uh, with prayer and tremendously uh, energetic study, and uh, and keep doing good work. Well. Dr. Bates, it's been wonderful having you on. It's been a great conversation. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Love to be back sometime. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, we're going to have Beth Shepard on. She's going to be talking about her book, The Craft of History and the Study of the New Testament. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>